um, we are starting uh, a series called Out of Order, okay? And so this is week two in the series Out of Order. The title Out of Order really comes um, from this guy named um, St. Augustine. So some of you have heard of St. Augustine. And, uh, and essentially what he had to say was this really brilliant thought. He was philosopher, theologian, thinker uh, back in the fifth century. And Augustine had this great idea. And what he basically said was, he said, sin is always disordered love, right? Sin is always disordered love, right? It's when, it's ultimately, as he said, when you love something that God has created more than God himself. And when you do that, everything gets out of order. Now, it's also disordered love in lots of other ways. If a husband loves his career over his family, well, you can just imagine the disorder that results from that, right? That's, that's the type of brokenness he's talking about. Uh, if there's someone who, you know, who loves their physical appearance more than they love their spouse, then you can see how brokenness would really result out of that. And what he basically is saying is he's saying that sin is fundamentally not all the icky stuff out there that you might ordinarily think of as sin. Sin is when you take a really, really good thing that God created and, uh, and you get it out of order, right? That's ultimately what sin is. It's a really beautiful picture and a thoughtful picture of what sin ultimately is. And what's interesting is the Bible has a story for each of these potential disordered loves. Last week, we talked about the idea of family as a disordered love, and we took a look at Abraham and Sarah. We basically saw how God came to Abraham, and he was like, I'm going to be your shield, right? I'm going to protect you. I'm going to be your tower. I'm going to be your safety. I'm going to be your identity. He says, I'm going to be your shield. And Abraham goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, where's my family, right? In other words, what Abraham was saying is, okay, that's fine, but what I really love more than anything, what I really want more than anything is a family. If I could only have a family, then I'd be fulfilled. And Abraham totally misses it, right? He totally misses that what God is saying is, I'm offering you myself. Today, we're actually gonna be looking at a second of these disordered loves, and and it's gonna be the concept of romantic love, right? Of romantic love. Just think about that for a moment. Now, what I'm gonna do is we're gonna have a little bit of a, of a pop cultural uh, introduction via the, uh, the, the musicians over here. They're gonna be singing a song from Le- Ray LaMontagne called Trouble. But uh, before I turn things over to them, I'm gonna take a moment, I'm gonna pray. Father, thanks for each of these um, men and women, um, boys and girls, young people that are here today. I thank you, Father, that you make it clear that no one in this room is here this morning by accident that everyone in this room this morning is here because you have in some way, one way or another, drawn them to this place, either in order to have a conversation with someone that's in this room or to sing a song or to hear some scripture read, but whatever it is, Father, I pray that you would meet these people in this room this morning. I pray that no one would be able to leave this room this morning without having had an encounter with you, the living God. Father, we pray all these things uh, in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen. Awesome. Hey, that's better than Ray LaMontagne, people. Thank you guys for being able to do that. So you guys heard the words. Maybe some of you have heard that song before, and maybe you've always been like, yeah, it's a good song. I like it. And what's interesting is you listen to that song, listen to the words by Ray LaMontagne. It's a great, it really is a great song. And what he's saying is, he's saying, you know, when I experience trouble, what saves me is this woman, right? And when I feel like I'm going to be left alone, what's going to save me is this woman. She won't let me go. I've been saved by a woman, right? And so essentially what he's doing is he's singing one of the mantras of our day and age, which is that if I can only be loved by someone, then my life will be complete, 
right? If I can only be loved by someone, if I can only love someone, then my life's going to be perfect. It's exactly the way it's supposed to be. That will ultimately be the thing that saves me, right? That's what he's essentially saying, and it's what a thousand songs you know, written in the last 50 years have said. That's been that message over and over and over again. And so many of us that have grown up in the Southeast in particular, we think, man, you know, if in college I can only meet that girl, right? Or, you know, or if after I graduate from college and I'm in the business world, if I can only meet that guy, right, then my life will be complete. My life will be perfect. I'll be saved by this romantic love. The problem is that um, that's a false promise. And uh, for those of you in this room, um, those of us in this room who've been married for one, two, five, 20 years, you know that as wonderful as marriage is, it was never intended to fill that place in our lives. That place in our lives can only be filled by God. But here's an interesting thing. There's a man named Ernest Becker. And Ernest Becker was a, a anthropologist at Syracuse. And uh, he was writing back in the 70s. In fact, he won a Pulitzer Prize back in 1974. And in it, he was talking about this. He said, in a world where we're sort of putting God to the side or we're, uh, or we're getting rid of God altogether, he said what's happening is, and he's not a Christian, right? He's just writing as a secular anthropologist. But what he's saying is in that world where we're kind of putting God to the side, inevitably we have this transcendent, infinite sort of hole within us. And he said we're going to look somewhere. Like we're going to try to find something to fit that transcendent, infinite hole within us. And essentially, ultimately what he's said we do is we look to a romantic love interest to fill that void within us, to save us, he says, to redeem us, right? But it doesn't work. It can't work. It was never intended to. Listen to what Becker says in his book, The Denial of Death. He says this, after all, what is it that we want when we elevate the love partner to the position of God? We want, again, not a Christian, we want redemption, nothing less. We want to be rid of our faults, of our feelings, of nothingness. We want to be justified, to know that our creation has not been in vain. We want to know that our life has purpose. We turn to the love partner for the experience of the heroic, for perfect validation. We want to be validated by that other person, right? Needless to say, human partners can't do this. The lover does not dispense cosmic heroism. He cannot give absolution in his own name. Redemption can only come from outside the individual, from beyond, from our conceptualization of the ultimate source of things, the perfection of creation. Do you hear that? What he's saying is he's saying when we, as human beings, when we get God out of our lives, we're going to turn most of us to a romantic love interest to redeem us, to give our life meaning, to to tell us that we matter, right? To give order to our lives, he says we're looking for redemption. But you know what the problem of that is? The problem with that is that no romantic love partner, no girlfriend, no boyfriend, no husband, no wife can ever bear the weight of divinity. No husband, no wife, no girlfriend, no boyfriend can bear the weight of divinity. Can you imagine that weight of divinity? It's crushing. In fact, it's so crushing that when we seek to, to, to turn that, uh, that infinite desire that we have on someone else and we expect them to redeem us or to save us, as Ray LaFontaine was talking about a minute ago, all sorts of brokenness occurs, right? All sorts of brokenness. Uh, it crushes that love interest. They can't bear the weight of divinity. We become bitter because they can't be God. They're not perfect and they're never going to be. Turning back to Becker, here's again what he says about this brokenness that flows as we seek 
to make a love partner, God, in our lives, to redeem us and save us. Here's what he says. Again, this is a continuance of the same section. If you find the ideal love and try to make it the sole judge of good and bad in yourself, the measure of your strivings, you become simply the reflex of another person. You lose yourself in the other. Anybody ever seen that happen before? Right, anybody ever seen one of your guy friends turn into a spineless sack of goo in an un, you know, inappropriate kind of way? Right, you've seen it, maybe you've experienced it, where you find yourself sort of you know, pouring yourself into this other person. And you, you look to that other person to redeem you, to save you, to give your life meaning. And what happens is you end up becoming less and less and less of a person and more and more and more of a race, sort of a shell of a human being because you simply become whatever that other person wants you to be. They don't want that. Right, And it's not good for you either. You lose yourself. You become a reflex of that other person. He goes on to say this. He says, how can a human being be a godlike everything to another? No human relationship can bear the burden of godhood. And the attempt has to take its toll in some way on both parties. In other words, the brokenness of sin, disordered love, the brokenness manifests itself on both parties. The one who seeks to create an idol out of the love interest, and the one who is the love interest, the one who's the idol. He says this, it can only come, as Rank saw, he's quoting an authority, when we lay down our individuality, give it up, admit our creatureliness and our helplessness. What he's saying here is that we long to be naked and unashamed, all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, the created ordinance, the fall. We long to be naked and unashamed, but we long for that person to heal us, right, in our shame. In our nakedness, they can't do that, right? Another human being cannot heal you. What partner, he goes on to say, would ever permit us to do this, would bear us if we did? The partner needs us to be as God. On the other hand, what partner would ever want to give redemption unless he was mad? Even the partner who plays God in the relationship cannot stand it for long, as at some level he knows that he does not possess the resources that the other needs and claims, right? In other words, if you're the one who's the object of that idolatry, and, and I guarantee you, there are numbers of you in here in this room this morning, you know you don't have what it takes to heal that other person, to redeem that other person, to save that other person. You don't have what it takes. You know that down deep inside, right? He goes on to say, he does not have perfect strength, perfect assurance, secure heroism. He cannot stand the burden of godhood, and so he must resent the slave. Think about how many times you've loved someone, right? You dreamed about them, you know, as you listen to your iPod in bed at night and you listen to Ray LaMontagne or Sufjan Stevens or whoever, and you dreamed about that romantic love interest, right? And then you, you wrote a song and you played it to that romantic love interest under their window when you're in college or, or something. And, uh, and what ends up happening is when that person begins to feel that you're turning them into a god, they begin to resent you, right? It even happens in marriage, right? In a, in a perfectly sort of seemingly healthy marriage, when one partner begins to look to the other person to, to sort of be everything, to be their redemption, to be their identity, to be their weightiness, then inevitably, not only is it crushing to the one who creates an idol of that other person, but it's crushing to the one who becomes an idol. And so they must, in the end, resent, he says, the slave, right? Do you get what he's saying here? Do you get, you get what scripture is communicating here? Right, over and over again, it's what Augustine is communicating here. I, I really like that song by Ray LaMontagne, but all of a sudden, it sounds a little different to me. Right? It doesn't sound so good. 
Because when we create an idol or a god out of a perfectly wonderful and good but yet broken, non-divine human being, chaos ensues in our life and in the life of that person. Now here's what's interesting. The Bible addresses every form of idolatry, whether you idolize your job, whether you idolize control or power or family like we talked about last week with Abraham and Sarah, but the Bible also has a story for this idea of creating an idol out of romantic love, and it's found in Genesis chapter 29. I'm going to read verses 16 through 35, and for those of you who know a little bit about scripture, it's the story of Jacob, Leah, and Rachel. Now, just to sort of orient you to this story, Jacob is ultimately the son of Isaac, right? And, uh, and, uh, and essentially, what happened was is that Isaac married a woman named Rebekah. They had two children, Esau and Jacob. And what's interesting is the story makes it very clear that ultimately Isaac loved his oldest son, Esau. And we'll get into that in a little while. But, but his preference and his disordered love for his oldest son and his disdain for his youngest son was this horrible picture of disordered love that created chaos and brokenness. Some of you maybe feel like you've been the product of this type of disordered love. And so what happens, you guys know the story, is that Jacob steals the birthright from his older brother Esau, and he travels to a far away land because he's afraid that Esau is going to kill him. And when he gets there, he's left his family and his friends and his life and everything behind, and he meets his uncle Laban, and fundamentally, he basically says, looks to Laban, and he says, you know, do you have anything for me? Can you take care of me? And Laban says, oh, by the way, I've got these two daughters. We're going to begin the story there in verse 16. It says this, now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak. Okay? We'll get back to that in a few minutes. But Rachel was beautiful in form and in appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. Hadn't really talked to her yet, right? Didn't know her inner self, what her passions were, what she valued in life, whether she was noble and good. But Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you, speaking to Laban, seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. And don't miss here what Laban doesn't do. Laban doesn't say yes. He answers in sort of a tricky kind of way. And for those of you who know the story, you'll see in a little while why he does that. Verse 20, so Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him a few days because of the love that he had for her. 21, then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her, that is, Jacob went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah, right? And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to, to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. That comes into play because each of these women ultimately give their servants uh, to Jacob to, to father children through them. Verse 30, so Jacob went into Rachel also, 
and he loved Rachel more than Leah. Disordered love. And he served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband, now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. All right, what a sad story. It really is just just so sad. I mean, from start to finish. You know, you've got a father who loves one son better than another. And man, that, that leaves a wound, right? That, that leaves a void. And it leaves a hole within the person who's the object of that disordered love. And you've got poor Leah, right? You know, she's the older sister, but she's got weak eyes. And again, commentators have a thousand different you know, takes on what that means. But basically what it means is that she wasn't very attractive. But her younger sister, Rachel, was beautiful. And the text goes out of its way to make that point, right? And not only that, but then ultimately, you know, Jacob, Leah's husband, really wants Rachel the whole time. And so Leah is rejected again and again, right? It's just a sad story of them desiring to be loved, but being the product of broken and disordered love. Now, one of the things that we've been doing the last couple months is whenever we read a passage of scripture, we've been asking some questions. And one of the questions that we ask is, where do we see our sin and misery in this passage? Or another way of saying it, you know, what's our brokenness that we see in this passage? And there are several things. I'm going to jump into them. One of the things we see that's a product of brokenness or sin and misery in this passage is that we all bear the scars of disordered love. We all bear the scars of disordered love. Every one of us in this room bears the scars of disordered love. I'm going to read, starting in Genesis 25, and then I'm going to jump over to Genesis 29, which is where we've been. But Genesis 25 is the story of Jacob and Esau, essentially. So verse 26, afterwards his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. That is, Jacob is holding on Esau's heel. They were twins. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents, right? And so Esau's a man's man. Jacob liked playing video games. He was indoors a little more. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, just let me pause there for a second. Listen to sort of the starkness of that. The idea here is that it was pretty well known that Isaac really loved Esau, right? He preferred him, right? That wasn't a mystery in their home, right? Because, because Esau was whoever he expected uh, an older son to be, right? He was what he hoped and what he thought and what he desired. But then it says Rebe- Rebekah loved Jacob. And so there's this picture of Jacob being unchosen, undesired, unpreferred, maybe unloved. And then verse 30 of chapter 29 says this, So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. Right? Just, I mean, it's, it's just this 
sort of domino effect of disordered love and brokenness that is built into these people, right? They're all the products. We're all the products of disordered love. So you've got Esau, who really, in some respects, was loved too much, right? And maybe Rachel was too. We can't really tell from, from the passage. But ultimately, you know, Esau was spoiled, right? He was impulsive because his father sort of turned a blind eye to some of his brokenness. But he was a man's man. He was a hunter, right? In Rome, he would have played football or he might have played baseball. He would have been an athlete and his dad loved him, right? His dad just treasured him. But as a result, it made Esau a very unhealthy human being. He was the product of a disordered love, right? How about Jacob? Jacob, on the other hand, we're told, was a quiet man dwelling in tents. And so in Rome, Jacob may have been an artist, right? He may have been a musician, or he may actually have been some form of video game player, but it's clear that his dad doesn't love him, that his dad doesn't prefer him. And let me tell you, that type of disordered love leaves a mark, right? That type of disordered love leaves a wound, leaves a void within you. Some of you have been the product of these types of disordered loves from a father, from a mother, from someone, but it leaves a mark, it leaves a wound. Leah, on the other hand, lived in the shadow of her younger sister, Rachel, right? Rachel was beautiful. The text is pretty interesting, right? It goes out of its way to use a couple different descriptors for how Rachel was pretty. One descriptor is that her face was pretty. The other Hebrew word means that her circumference was pretty. I'll just let you guess what that means. But what it does mean is that is that ultimately Leah was beautiful, right, according to the standards of the day. I mean, it's that Rachel was beautiful according to the standards of the day. And whatever weak eyes meant, Leah was not, right? She just wasn't. She just wasn't. And what's interesting is that Jacob, at best, seems to kind of tolerate his wife. You know, but, but ultimately, uh, he, you know, he uses her. And at worst, she's invisible to him, or maybe he even hates her. But either way, she's unloved, unchosen, invisible to the one the very one who's supposed to love her, right? She's unchosen and unloved by the very one that's supposed to protect her and choose her and see her and love her, right? And she's rejected. And that kind of wound also leaves a deep, deep hole, a void within us. Both Jacob and Leah were unloved and unchosen and those wounds left deep holes in their lives. And I would argue again that each of us in this room bears the wounds of disordered love. Some of you have been loved too much, and as a result, um, you've got the symptoms of that, narcissism maybe, uh, maybe not enough self-awareness to your brokenness. Some of you have been loved too little. I would probably argue that most of you who actually in this room have been loved too little, and in one way or another, there's a void within you. There's a hole in your heart that, that is infinite, right? It's infinite. And my guess is that most of you are trying to feel that, fill that infinite hole in your heart with something that's finite and it's never going to work. Each of us bears the wounds of disordered love. The second thing we see in this passage is that not only do we bear the wounds of disordered love, but many of us in this room seek to heal the wounds of disordered love through romantic love or through, through another person, right? A, a romantic love interest. Listen to, to uh, several verses from Genesis 29. This is talking about Jacob again. But Rachel was beautiful in form and in appearance. We talked about that already. Jacob loved Rachel, right? He didn't know her, right? He just met her, right? There's no such thing as love at first sight. I, just, I hate to break that to you, 
I don't care what Frozen or whatever Disney movie out there says, right? I, watched, I started watching a movie on Netflix last night. I can't remember what it was called. But, uh, but it was this guy, Colin Firth, met some lady on a train. And when he gets off the train, 24 minutes later, he claims that he's in love. That, I'm sorry, that just doesn't happen, right? You can find someone interesting. They can be really attractive, right? But, but that's not love. It's just, it's just not, right? But Jacob has this hole in his heart, this infinite hole in his heart. And when he sees Rachel, he is looking for something to cram into that infinite void. And Rachel's beautiful and she'll do, right? And so ultimately, it says that, uh, that he loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you, speaking to Laban, seven years for your younger daughter. Now again, the point here is that we're seeing the impulsiveness and just this sort of um, irrational desire and need that Jacob has to fill this void. And he offers seven years, which is about four times the amount that would have been offered in the ancient Near East. And basically, it's this exorbitant amount. And he just says, I'll do anything for her. I've got to have her, even seven years. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. That makes a great song, yeah, right? I mean, Ray LaMontagne could make a song about that, but it makes for a terrible beginning for a relationship. It makes for a terrible marriage. Verse 32, now we're talking about Leah. And Leah conceived and bore a son. And listen to the, how the plaintiff, you know, plaintive words of this passage. And Leah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. Now my husband will love me. I've given him a son, right? Didn't love me before, but now he will. She conceived again and bore another son this time and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he's given me this son also, and she called his name Simeon. And so not only does Jacob not love her, she thinks he he just hates me, right? Now I've borne him two sons. It says again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me. He is, he's not chosen me. He's been separate from me. But now my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. It's just such a sad section of scripture. Let me pause for a second. And again, the point I'm making here is that many of us seek to heal the wounds of disordered love by finding a romantic love interest. So Jacob, again, Part of what we're doing here is we're looking at Jacob and seeing his impulsiveness. We're seeing how much he has to have Rachel. And one of the things we see is he goes to Laban, for example, and he says, give me Rachel that I may go in and lie with her. And one of the things that comes out in the Hebrew here is that's, that would be shocking language for 2016 for a, a groom to say that to a bride's uh, father. Right? That would not be cool. Back then, it was hor- just horrendous. Like It would have been so offensive. But what Jacob is basically saying here is he's saying, I'm desperate. I have to have her. And think about for a second how many of us in our culture would say this about that romantic love interest. We would say, I've got to have her to feel complete, right? Like if only I had that woman, then I would be, my life would be perfect. It would be complete. And that's what we see here in Jacob. He's so desperate to love and be loved that he creates this idol out of Rachel. Not only that, but we see Leah here. And whereas the situation with Jacob is a little hazier, you have to read into it a little bit more, it's crystal clear with Leah, right? She has Reuben, and she names him to see, implying that she feels invisible to her husband, and she says, now my husband will love me, right? Now I've given him a son, now my husband will love me, but he doesn't, right? 
She gets pregnant a second time, and this time she names her son Simeon, which means he has heard. And she says, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. She hopes that this time Jacob will hear her, that he'll be the one that hears her, and that he'll choose her, but he doesn't, right? She's unchosen. Again, she conceives and bears a son, this time naming him Levi, which means attached, right, to be attached to someone, saying, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I've borne him three sons, but he isn't, right? She's unloved, she's unchosen, she's unattached, and all the while she's going, if I can just be the perfect wife, if I can just be the perfect wife, then he'll love me, right? I mean, just think for a moment, how many of you in here have watched your mother maybe, or you've watched your father, or, or maybe you've done it yourself, and you've thought in relation to whoever your spouse is, if I can just keep the house perfect, then my husband will love me more than work, right? Or maybe there's a husband in this room, and he says, you know what, if I can just be the perfect husband, and I can work out, and if I can mow the grass, and if I can provide, then my wife will respect me, and she'll love me. And Leah is essentially doing the same thing. She's saying, I'm being the perfect wife, and he still doesn't love me. I'm unchosen. I'm invisible, right? He doesn't love her. And again, what we see here is that kind of disordered love leaves, just leaves a wound. And they're both trying so hard to fill that void within themselves, and it's just leading to more and more brokenness. Listen to what Keller, Tim Keller, says in his book, Counterfeit Gods. He says this, making an idol out of love may mean allowing the lover to exploit and abuse you, okay? Just think for a moment, maybe you look at your parents' relationship, maybe you look at a relationship you've been in, and, and think about it for a moment. Think about how many times, if you're the, the idolater or the one being idolized, think about how often maybe you've been exploited, right? Maybe think about the times you've been abused because, because you worship the ground that other person walks on. We see it all the time. He goes on to say, or it may cause terrible blindness to the pathologies of your relationship. Think about the relationships you've been in before that are just horribly unhealthy, but you can't see it. Your friends see it, and your friends talk to you about it, but you can't see it because that person is an idol. Any idolatrous attachment can lead you to break any promise, rationalize any indiscretion, or betray any other allegiance in order to hold on to it, right? That's what infidelity is, right? Infidelity is when you're married to a man or you're married to a woman and that finite person can't fill your infinite void. And so ultimately infidelity is where you break a promise to that person in order to find true love somewhere else. Keller goes on to say, this idolatry of another person may drive you to violate all good and proper boundaries, right? Think about the pressures that weigh upon you. Think about the pressures that weigh upon us to break uh, proper boundaries, to violate those things that we said we'd never do, and yet we do them because we're so, so desirous of being loved by this other person. He finishes by saying, to practice idolatry is to be a slave, to be a slave. It goes all the way back to what Ernest Becker said, right? You must despise the slave. So the question is, what do we do, right? I hope this has been heavy for you, right? Steve Riggs, who's somewhere in this room, uh, talks about how preaching ultimately is, uh, is where if there's a sort of a barb that's sort of sticking into your chest, he said nice people want to remove the barb, but he said preaching is where you take that barb and you push it in a little bit deeper, right? And that's what I hope I've done this morning, 
Because what God needs you to realize, what I hope you realize, what Ernest Becker hopes you realize, what Tim Keller hopes that you realize is that when you idolize someone else, not only is it not fair to that person, it's gonna create brokenness in your life, in their life, in your family, in your world. It's not going to work. It wasn't designed to. So what do we do? Like, what are our options, right? Here's what Tim Keller says. He basically says we have four options of what to do with this. One, he says, if you've created an idol out of this love interest, he said, it's not gonna work. And so when it doesn't work, one option is to blame your partner. In other words, to say, you know, clearly I'm with the wrong person. And so if I'm with the wrong person, I need to do what? I need to find the right person, right? Because if, if romantic love is, is the solution, then I've got the wrong person. I need the right person. I sat at breakfast not long ago with a man who had had an affair on his wife. And, uh, and he was trying to get back together with his wife. And I sat across the table from him. And he literally said these words. He said, I just feel like I missed out on my one true love, right? I feel like I missed out on my one true love. And he ended up leaving his wife and going back to his one true love several years ago now. But the reality is that what we see here is that he, he fundamentally blamed his first wife. She, she wasn't the right one. And so he chose another. And guess what? It's not gonna be too long before that finite partner also doesn't meet his needs or desires. And she is crushed under the weight of godhood. You blame your partner. Or maybe you blame yourself, right? Maybe this whole desire to fill this infinite void with a, with a romantic love partner hasn't worked for you, and so you blame yourself. And you say, clearly something is wrong with me. If I could only be better, right? If I could only be prettier, if I could only be more confident, if I could only make more money, right? If I could only be funnier, if I could only be taller. I'm not talking about myself here. But if I could just change who I am, then, then that person would love me. You blame yourself, it's the path of self-loathing, and that also doesn't work, right? You, don't, you can't blame the other person, you can't blame yourself. That person wasn't created to be God. They weren't created to fill the infinite void within you, but we do it anyway. We blame our partner, we blame ourselves. Sometimes the third option is we blame the opposite sex. And so you hear people say all the time, men are pigs, you know, men are pigs. I'm done with men right? Men are terrible. The truth is men are disgusting. I'm just going to go ahead and be honest with you. If you're a college student here this morning, you need to understand that, right? The guys that you're sitting next to probably didn't bathe this morning. Whatever you do, do not sit down on the floor of their dorm room. It's not just not going to be good. I'll just tell you that. Or you blame women and you say, women are crazy. You know, women are crazy, right? They're too much, but whatever it is, you blame, you blame, you blame, you blame women, you blame men, you blame yourself, you blame your partner, but none of those things work. In fact, blaming the opposite sex is just a pathway to cynicism and bitterness, and you're gonna end up just as lonely as you were before. So what do you do? The answer is, and we see this in this passage, Genesis 29, and we hear it um, in the words of Tim Keller when he says, the only alternative for us if we have this infinite desire within us, is to turn to an infinite being, we have to turn to God. Here's what C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity. I've read this before, but it bears repeating. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures 
Husbands and wives and girlfriends and boyfriends and friends and even parents were never meant to satisfy. They were never meant to fill the infinite void within you, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing, right? There is something that fits in that infinite hole in your heart, in that void that you've been trying to fill, but it's not a finite object, right? And it's definitely not a finite person, husband or wife, boyfriend or girlfriend. It seems that Leah finally realizes this after she gives birth to their fourth son, Judah, right? Which his name means praise, right? That's what his name is. His name means praise. And what she says in verse 35, it says this, and she conceived again and bore a son. And she says, this time I will praise the Lord. This time I will praise the Lord. I've been looking at my husband, Jacob, who's supposed to love me, who's supposed to protect me, who's supposed to desire me, who's supposed to choose me, who's supposed to treasure me. I've been looking to him, but he hasn't seen, he hasn't heard, he hasn't chosen what happened. She may have been invisible to Jacob, but she experienced a God who saw her and who cared about her. Jacob may not have heard her desire to be loved, but God heard and he loved her. Jacob may have, been cho- have chosen Rachel, but she, that is Leah, was chosen by God, not just to bear children for Jacob, but through the line of Judah, her line, to bring the Savior of the world, right? God was to Leah what Jacob wouldn't and couldn't ever be, right? You need to understand that that infinite void within you is a real void, It's a real void. And I'm betting that most of you in this room this morning have sought to fill that void with another person, right? You've been in counseling and maybe you've looked back at your parents and thought they should have filled that void, but even they're finite beings, right? Maybe some of you in this room this morning, you know, in high school or in college, you had sort of that person you thought was your one true love. Guess what? They weren't, right? They're finite, They were never designed to fill that infinite void within you. They're great. Your parents are great. Your husband is great. Your wife is great. They're all great. They're all good things, but they're not the best thing, right? And the only thing that will fill that infinite void within your heart is an infinite God who sees you, your pain, your hurt, your loneliness, your beauty, right? The only thing that will fill that void, that hole, in your heart is a God who hears you, who has heard your cry of desperation, right? Who has heard your cries of loneliness, right? It's only that God, that infinite God that will fill that infinite void within you. It's only the God who says, I will attach myself to you. I will be your father. You will be my daughter. You will be my son. I will be to you what all of the people in the world could never have ever been, right? I love you, right? That's the only way this disordered love ever gets right, right? You, you can't simply say, all right, I recognize that I've made an idol out of romantic love partners, so I'm not gonna do it anymore. You can't just do that. Something has to become more beautiful to you than all of the men and all of the women, all of the husbands, all of the wives, all of the parents in this entire world And when someone becomes more beautiful to you is when you look at God and you see that he heard you, that he sees you, and that he loves you, 
Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this word. I thank you um, that uh, you are a God who, um, as uh, Bob mentioned earlier, you're a God who sees, frankly, from the very beginning of time, all of our flaws, all of our idolatry, all of our rebellion, all of our disordered love, all of our preference for other people over you, and you loved us anyway. And so, Father, I pray that this morning you would become more beautiful to us than any created thing. No matter how wonderful and great and beautiful it is, I pray that you would be more beautiful to us than anything that this world has to offer. I pray all these things now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.